Let's pray. Father, you have given us the greatest gift that we could ever receive. You have given us yourself. And you have given us yourself in your son, in your son, Jesus. And then in having Jesus, we get your spirit, the spirit of Christ in us, the mind of Christ in us, the thoughts of Christ in us, the power of Christ in us, the joy of Christ in us, the victory of Christ in us. Our entire purpose is to exalt Jesus. He is glory unimaginable. He is power and might and strength. He is courage in the face of sin and courage in the face of death. He is bravery that no human could ever match. His strength is beyond what we are even capable of perceiving. His glory is so bright and so great and so majestic that there will be no sun in heaven because he and his glory is the brightness of our world. He has conquered sin. He has died for our sins. His passion for truth is far beyond our zeal. He is right, he is just, he is true, he's compassionate and wise and full of all of the knowledge of God. He is good and kind, he is gentle and lowly, he is gracious and full of mercy. He speaks truth when truth needs to be spoken, he holds his tongue when his tongue needs to be held. His patience with our sin is unmatched. His goodness to us is something we have never seen in another human. He has felt every temptation that every person in this room has felt and beyond that. And yet he was without sin. And so we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who has endured all the things that we face in life. What are our problems in the face of this God. Exalt Jesus this morning, Father. We pray in his name. Amen. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus tells a parable. It's the parable of the hidden treasure. I'm sure a lot of you know this parable. It's an awesome parable. It's short. The parable itself is one verse long. I'm going to read it for you. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The treasure was hidden, then it was found. It was valuable enough to give up everything he had. And this man was motivated by the joy that comes in possessing that treasure. So the, in the parable, Jesus is telling us about the kingdom of heaven. 
But what is the kingdom? Because he says the kingdom is like a treasure. So the kingdom is a treasure. So what's the kingdom? If we figure out what the kingdom is, we'll figure out what the treasure is. It's like a math equation. X equals Y. Well, Y is treasure and X is kingdom. So what is kingdom? In Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He's talking about himself. He is telling us that he is the kingdom, that Jesus is the kingdom. He is at hand. He is finally here. He is salvation. And he, salvation, was hidden for ages, just like the treasure was hidden in the parable, but is now revealed to the church for our salvation. Paul, in Colossians 2, was talking about that just earlier, and back at the end of chapter 1 about the treasure that is, about, about the, the mystery that is now revealed. It was hidden. And what was hidden? The treasure, the kingdom, Jesus, salvation was hidden and is now open and available and ready for anybody who is willing to believe. So the point here is that Jesus is the treasure in the parable. And with that treasure comes an abundance of wealth in everything that he owns. All that he has is ours. We experience that possession of his things very differently in this life and on this earth than we will in eternity. But all that he has, we inherit and possess. And that includes knowledge and wisdom. So let me ask you a question. If I said to you, I have here, um, let's say wisdom and knowledge came in a bucket. Okay, and you can just fill it up with wisdom and knowledge and just hand you that bucket. If I said, I got here a bucket of wisdom and knowledge for you, would you want it? I don't really know many people. In fact, I can't really think of one person in particular who would say, no, I don't want, I don't want more knowledge. I'm very comfortable only knowing that which I know today, and I don't need more knowledge. Or I'm comfortable with the amount of wisdom I have. I don't want more wisdom. How many times in your life have you prayed to God for more wisdom? Probably a lot. I don't know about you, but I probably ask God for wisdom 10 times a week, at least. To the point where I, got, I literally got to the point where I was thinking to myself, I am just throwing that phrase, Father, give me wisdom, into my prayers without even thinking about what it means or it having any real meaning anymore because I was saying it so often and I had to backtrack and be like, okay, I need to step back and think about what this means when I ask you for wisdom. It, it's natural for any human, believe it or not, to desire knowledge and wisdom. And we'll see that a little bit too in the context of the Colossians, the importance of wisdom and knowledge and how people desired it so much. So today's verse tells us about the treasure, and the treasure is Jesus, and it tells us about the blessings of possessing him as our treasure. And the blessing of possessing Jesus as our treasure is wisdom and knowledge. But there are no commands in this verse, so this is important. There's no commands in this verse. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you in this text that despite there being no command that there is actually a command here that is implied simply because of the value of the treasure, Jesus. And my hope for you is that you will be motivated because of the treasure 
to get more knowledge and wisdom for your spiritual, spiritual maturity. But not so that you would be mature, but so that you would have more Jesus. So, Colossians 2, 3, Paul writes to the church. He ends verse 2 talking about Jesus Christ. And he, so at the end of verse 2 he says, Jesus Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this is a clear statement about the significance of Jesus in the Christian life. In him, whom is our life, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we all know that by faith in Jesus... Our sins are forgiven. We are freely given his perfect righteousness. And we are all destined for eternal life in his presence with unimaginable joy. We know that. We could kind of summarize and say that's the gospel. But as Hebrews 6 tells us, that is elementary. It's vital. It's glorious. And it's worthy of our praise. But Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. That is elementary. We die without it. It is foundational, fundamental, and the most important reality in your salvation. It is not undermined when I say it is elementary. Every Christian believes that. You cannot be a Christian if you do not believe that. So it is the first line of defense into getting into Christianity, which means it's elementary. The requirement to enter elementary school is to be five years old. <laughs> okay? So this is five-year-old doctrine. The requirement to getting into Christianity is to believe the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. Confess and believe, and you're saved. Beautiful, wonderful, glorious, but elementary. And what the author of Hebrews tells us about elementary doctrines in Hebrews 6.1 is this. Go on to maturity. Meaning, excel beyond just the basic principles of your faith in Christ and move toward holiness. And holiness is a product of the way that you think. And the way that you think is determined by your knowledge. So the way in which we mature in our faith is to gain knowledge. I think a lot of us are really fixated on the things that we do and less fixated on the way that we think. Depends on your personality. Depends on who you are. Some of you are thinkers more than your doers. Some of you are doers more than your thinkers. For the doers, your trap is going to be doing without thinking. What is motivating your doing, your actions? Because your actions are a product of the way that you think, and the way that you think is a product of your knowledge. So for the doers, my recommendation is slow down. Think about your motivation for what you're doing. And then, the right motivation, move into action. For the thinkers, speed up, <laughs> take that thought, and do something about it. 
instead of just talking about what you could do. Either way, we still have to think properly, we have to think biblically, and in order to do so, we must gain knowledge and wisdom. So the question is, what knowledge do we need to gain to mature in Christ? And the answer is in verse 3, which says, all, all of the knowledge and wisdom. Now that verse only tells us where the knowledge that we need for maturity is located. That verse, that's all it's doing, is it's locating where we find wisdom and knowledge, and the location is in Jesus. So that verse doesn't tell us or command us to get that knowledge. There's no, there's no imperatives for us. It, it only locates the knowledge and wisdom for us in Jesus, and there's no imperatives in this verse, no commands, no directives, just indicatives, which are statements of fact about Jesus and wisdom and knowledge. So why would I say that this verse is telling us to go get that knowledge? If I gave you a map, and on that map was a big red X, and I said that at the location of this large red X is an unthinkable amount of treasure and wealth that will sustain you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren for their entire lives. Would you take that map and go get that treasure? The only thing that would stop you from going and getting that treasure is the question, well, if I find it, am I like morally allowed to, to have it? Can I just, can I have it? Well, for following the parable that Jesus is telling, this guy sold everything he had and bought the field, so it's his. So we're just going to assume that you are morally allowed to take this treasure. And the only other moral question that would slow you down would be, well, would it be good for my spiritual soul to be filthy rich? And I would probably tell you, the Bible doesn't say you can't be rich, but probably not going to be the best thing for you. So let's just say that this is going in with the, the parable that Jesus is telling, that this is a, allowed, morally allowed to possess this treasure. Is there anything stopping you from going and getting it? Nothing. No, most people wouldn't even have those moral, moral checkpoints at all. They would just go get it. But why? Why would you go to that, why would you take that map and go to that large red X on that map to get that treasure? Why would you go? Because it's treasure. It's valuable. It's provision for this life. It's freely yours if you go and get it. That is the exact same situation that we find in this verse. I didn't tell you, I didn't give you that map and tell you to go get this treasure at the red X, I just told you where it was and what you'll find there. I'm showing you location and what's at the location. I give you no commands. I'm not telling you to go get it. When I tell you where this treasure is, that it is treasure, you immediately understand its value and you naturally desire it and you will naturally pursue it. That is exactly what is expected in this verse. All humans, believers or not, will desire the treasure on that map. It is natural in us to desire that treasure. And that is the assumption that Paul makes here that all believers will naturally desire this treasure. They will naturally desire knowledge and wisdom that is found in Jesus. 
That is the natural inclination that resides in our new identity in Christ. A desire for sanctification, a desire for more Jesus. That is who we are. That is our new identity. We are new creations in Christ. Everything within you has changed. Yes, the nature of your sin and your flesh still is there. Galatians 5, there is a fight between your flesh and the spirit. Your flesh is battling the spirit and the spirit is battling your flesh that exists. I'm not discounting that or ignoring that. But there is a new reality in you, a new identity in you, a new person in you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's Galatians 2.20. That new identity, that new person, Christ in you, now desires new things. And it is natural in that new identity to desire that sanctification, to desire more Jesus, to desire more knowledge about him, more knowledge about life and about sin and about holiness and about the Bible, about God, about righteousness and about how to be a better spouse or a better parent and how to be a better follower of Jesus and how to talk and how to think and how to spend your money and how to serve and how to use your spiritual gifts and how to do anything in your life about all of the realities that come with being a Christian. And that desire for all of those things, for the knowledge and wisdom that it takes to do those things well, to increase in success in life and following Jesus, to increase your faith, those are now natural desires in us because those are the desires produced in us by the Spirit of God Himself who dwells in followers of Jesus. So, This verse may not give us the imperative command to go and get this knowledge, but Paul assumes that if you are a true believer, then that desire for more knowledge in Jesus will cause you to pursue the endless treasure of knowledge and wisdom. What he has given us is a treasure map. He told us where it's located in Jesus and what we'll find there. Jesus more knowledge, and more wisdom. Now, there is an important connection in this verse that cannot be ignored. Some people will desire knowledge. Some people will desire wisdom. Some people will pursue knowledge, and some people will pursue wisdom. But you cannot find either without finding Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, Jesus, whom... God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This isn't just something he possesses. This is who he is. He is wisdom. He is knowledge. To find knowledge is to find Christ. To find wisdom is to find Christ. There is no autonomy in knowledge and no autonomy in wisdom. They only reside in Jesus. This is a direct, for Paul, just contextually, in what's going on in the church in Colossae, Paul's writing this letter, this is a direct hit at the Gnosticism, which is, uh, which is a heresy that is invading the Colossian church. So the Greek word Gnosticism, the root Greek word in Gnosticism, which is a school of thought in the first century, 
is the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And so for the Gnostics, knowledge is everything. And Paul is saying the Gnostics have a different treasure map. Their map leads to knowledge, or what they think is knowledge. My map leads to Jesus, where you'll find true knowledge. They believe that knowledge and wisdom, the Gnostics believe that knowledge and wisdom was the greatest goal, and they pursued it. But the question is, did they find it? Well, they found their own version of knowledge and wisdom, but it wasn't truth. So it's not actually true knowledge and wisdom. My point is this. You've got two people. You've got the Christians who only find wisdom and knowledge in Christ, and you've got the Gnostics who find wisdom and knowledge in anything but Christ. So the, so the question about them is, is it real knowledge and is it real wisdom? Is it true knowledge and is their wisdom true? Well, they can't both be true. The only way to really have or receive or get fulfilled with knowledge and wisdom is to find Jesus. And the only way to grow in knowledge and wisdom is to grow in Jesus. And I say, and I show you the comparison between the Christian and the Gnostics because of this. Christians can easily become like heretical Gnostics who want knowledge and wisdom who want knowledge and wisdom and pursue it without ever giving a thought to Jesus. We can read our Bibles without giving a thought to Jesus. We can do a lot of good things without giving any thought about Jesus. Do you serve the church or serve each other? Like, think about that. Answer that question to yourself. Do I serve the church? Do I have a ministry to whatever extent? Whether it's simply, I just pray for the people in our church, and that's all I do for this church. That's how I serve this church. From the easiest thing to the most extreme thing, like you have like 20 ministries or whatever. Do you serve the church? Do you serve each other? Yes, do you? A lot of you do. Why? Why do you serve the church? That's a way bigger question than do you serve the church? When I say the church, I don't mean this organization we call Grace Church. I'm talking about God's people. Do you serve God's people? That question isn't nearly as important as why do you serve God's people? Is it because you have a gift and you want to share it? Is it because you're supposed to? Is it because you'll look bad if you don't? Seriously. Check your motivation. Why do you do it? Why do you do the Christian activities that you do? Why do you go to church? Why do you give? Why do you lead children's ministry or lead youth group or clean the church or serve on the worship team? Why do you love your wife? Why do you discipline your children? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? What's your motivation? Check your motivation. Because the why is way more important than the do you. The best biblical answer to those questions is this, I do it for Jesus. Or I do it because of Jesus. Or I do it to know Jesus more. Or I do it to be more like Jesus. Or I do it because Jesus tells me to do it. Or I do it for the joy I get 
in Jesus. He has to be your greatest motivation. Somehow, Jesus has to be your motivation. There was a man in our church who asked me and a couple other guys in the church to come over to his house yesterday and help him serve, or help serve him to help him build something, to do a project at his house. So I have to admit that when I was first asked, my initial reason for going over there was that when we're done with this project, the finished product is something that I am going to get to enjoy frequently, and it's something that I love. So when he said, are you going to help? And I said, if I get to use it whenever I want, he's like, of course. And I was like, yeah, I'm coming to help. I'll give you a hint. It's related to golf. Anyways, <laughs> so if you heard, I, you, know, you know what I noticed? I preach a lot more about golf during the summer. I don't know why. Anyways, um, I, my initial motivation was to get something out of it for myself. Like, I know that. That's just real. That's who I am. Do I love the guy? Yeah. Do I want to help him? Yeah. Do I want to wake up on Saturday morning and go work hard with my hands and body? No. <laughs> do I want to use this thing when it's done? Yeah. Am I willing to sacrifice my hands and my body for a few hours to use this thing? Yeah. Okay. Checks all the boxes. I should go do it. Plus, it makes me look good. You know? I'm over there working hard, you know, <laughs> serving the people of God. What a, what a great pastor sacrificing his time to come help us. <laughs> I mean, I just, there's no reason why I wouldn't do this. It makes me look good. I get to use it. I mean, you, and you can see the, the, the sin in my motivation. And the, you know, it wasn't until I really just, it dawned on me that I thought about what if he was building something that I would never use? Like, what if we were building a room so that we could put sewing machines in it? <laughs> I would have zero motivation to go help him. I'm not going to use that. And when I started thinking about that, because someone else challenged me on this kind of thinking this week. Uh, it dawned on me, Matthew 25, 40, where Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So I started thinking, why would I serve Jesus? Well, I don't get to mess around with my motivations when it comes to serving the Lord himself. And what Jesus tells us here is, when you do this for anybody, you're doing it for me. So now, I have to check my motivation. Am I helping because I get something out of it? Or am I helping because when I serve my brother, I'm directly serving Jesus? Do I love Jesus enough to serve him by serving his believers, by serving his brothers, by serving God's children? This is really the question. It's very simple. Is Jesus my motivation? If he's not, it's sin. It's, it's all there is to it. I mean, if that's what you get out of this, that's what you get out of this. I hope, because it's such a simple reality. If I do anything good or godly to serve, bless, benefit at all, anything, any activity I do as a Christian, is Jesus my motivation? If not, 
It is sin. It could, we could still identify the motivations as good. I'm doing it because I love other people. Why do you love other people and what causes your love to produce an action for them? Because Jesus told you to. And because Jesus loves those people. If you, whatever your reasoning is, it has to find its roots back in because of Jesus. What is my motivation then for pursuing wisdom and knowledge? Is it just to get wisdom? Is it just to get knowledge? Because college professors who deny Jesus have knowledge. Philosophers who write amazing, famous books have wisdom. But to what extent do they have those things if they don't have Jesus? If the aim is just maturity, then you don't need Jesus because all people will naturally mature as they go through life and they get different experiences and so their knowledge of the world grows as they experience new things and their wisdom in the world grows as they find failures and successes in life and they just naturally grow. So maturity is not the aim. The aim is maturity in Christ, which means you need more Jesus. So the aim is growth in Jesus. The aim is to become more like him. And the only way to become more like him is to know what he knows, to think how he thinks, to learn from him, to hear from him, to see him, to go to him, to find him, to ask of him, to talk to him, to read about him in his word, to pursue him. So I am not telling you that at the large red X on the map is the treasure of knowledge and wisdom. I am telling you that the treasure is Jesus. And in him you will find what you are looking for. This is why we say God is the gospel. Because the gospel is, the word literally means Good news, gospel, comes from two Latin words, god, G-O-D, doesn't mean God, it means good. God spell, god means good, spell means news, good news. That's why we call the gospel good news. And we, call, we say God is the gospel because the good news is that you get God, which is why uh, Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. Meaning, what good is heaven without Jesus? It's nothing. It's worthless. It's pointless. Wouldn't you say that heaven is the greatest goal? Isn't that what we strive for as Christians? Isn't that what we look forward to? Isn't that the most exciting part about enduring the hardships of this life? Eh, one day I get to go to heaven, but what good is heaven if Jesus isn't there? It's nothing. Which is why Psalm 73, 25 exists. Because without Jesus, it's nothing. So the good news is that we get heaven with him. Not just that we get heaven, but that we get him. The good news is God made a way for you to have God, and that way is through Jesus. So the good news of the gospel is God. That's why we say God is the gospel, because God is the good news. And God gives us himself in Jesus. So Jesus is the gospel. 
Jesus is the good news. Therefore, Jesus is our entire motivation for everything we do in this Christian life. He's your motivation for believing the gospel, which is why I do not like the gospel or the evangelical path when we share the gospel. People will be like, hey, you know, if you don't believe, you'll go to hell. We don't want people running from hell. We want people running to Jesus. The idea is to portray Christ as he really is, gloriously and magnificently fulfilling and satisfying and forgiving and gracious and kind and loving and powerful and beautiful and magnificent and full of glory and full of truth and a savior, a redeemer, a regenerator of your heart. That's the, you portray Jesus as he truly is and people will run to him. If you first help them understand the severity of their sin and that there is a consequence for their sin and that consequence is hell. They think they do need to hear that and know that. But the focus is not, you don't want to go to hell, do you? The focus is, you don't have to go there because there is something better. And it's not just better than hell. It's not just the opposite of hell. It is glorious. If hell isn't even an option, if the two options are you can spend eternity in heaven with Jesus or you can live eternally in this sinful flesh struggling with life forever and you never age another day for the rest of your life and you'll live eternally on this earth, and this earth will never pass away. It's not hell. Hell's way worse. But your two options are live eternally on this earth like that forever, have the same struggles, the same hardships, trying to make ends meet financially, trying to make your marriage work, trying to make your kids obey, trying to you know, love your job even though you hate it, trying to figure out life for eternity, or you can spend eternity with Jesus. One of those options is, neither option is hell. Jesus is still better. He's still that much more glorious than anything that this becomes hell then. In Jesus, you will find everything you're looking for. In this life and after this life. John 10, 10, he came to give us life and to give it abundantly. You will find knowledge and wisdom that instructs and directs and leads you to grow and mature into the mind of Christ when you find Jesus. And that will dictate the way that you think and how you think will dictate how you act. So to make this very practical for you, I'll say it like this. Jesus is the answer to all of your problems. Now, I think that it's so generic and so overly used in Christian circles, like we put it on bumper stickers. And I hate when I see that bumper sticker. It says like, I don't hate it, I'm sorry. It's awesome. I love when people put Jesus on their bumper. Okay, that's cool. But it'll say like, Jesus is the answer. I'm like, what's the question? Right? If Jesus is the answer, the answer to what? Like, Give me more information. Like, you know, those short phrases don't help people. No one's sitting there going, I mean, maybe, you know what? I bet you there are stories of someone sitting there going, oh, I'm struggling with life. And they look up from their steering wheel and they see a bumper saying, Jesus is the answer. They're like, he is? And they go to church and get saved. I don't know. But I'm sure that's happened before and that bumper sticker was used by God to bring someone to Christ. That'd be amazing. But my point is, it sounds kind of generic to say Jesus is the answer to all your problems, but that is the point. 
And I don't care what your problem is. I mean, I care about you and your problem, but I'm saying I don't care how big your problem is. It is not bigger than the God of the universe. It is not bigger than the one who has ordained your existence, who operates and owns every molecule in your body and moves all of your blood cells at the right pace and at the right direction in such a way that you get to stay alive for 80 years or 90 years or 100 years. He's the same God who knows your thoughts before you think them. He is the same God who has ordained you to be married. He is the same God who has called you to this church this morning. He's the same God who loves same God who's full of power. The same God who took an entire sea and went whoosh and split it and left dry dirt at the bottom for the Israelites to cross. He's the same God who did the exact same activity in the Jordan River so they could cross into the promised land. He's the same God who stood and watched a bunch of false prophets called down on their false God to do some miracle and nothing happened. And he's the same God who then responded by sending fire on an altar filled with water, consuming the water and showing who he really is. He's the same God who sent us his son, the same God who loves you so much he sent you his son. I hate, I kind of hate a little bit hate for this mushy Christianity where it's like, it's, it's all about you and God loves you and it's just so you-centered. I hate the you-centeredness of it and why I hate it is because the you-centeredness, you are not at the center, but you are incredibly important to the equation. Without you, there's no salvation. Without you, there's no one for God to pour his grace and mercy on. Without you, there's no gospel. Without you, there's no God's greatest glory. But it's not about you, and that's why I don't like that. But it is. You are massively important in this equation. He loves you so much. The Son of God loves you so much. He left perfection and glory. Can you even imagine? You can't. We can't. I, I could spend the next three hours straight trying to describe for you the magnificent, mind-blowing, unfathomable, un thinkable reality of the Father and the Son and the Spirit dwelling pre-eternally before the creation of the world, dwelling in their perfect love union of glory that is so unimaginable that not only would you be blinded if you looked into it, but your brain would be blinded. Your thoughts would be blinded by the thought of it. We cannot comprehend that glory and that joy of the union between the Father and the Son and the Spirit prior to the creation of the world and certainly prior to the incarnation of the Son of God becoming a baby boy who then becomes dependent on his mom for milk. He left that for you. Primarily, he left it for his glory, for the glory of his Father. But the glory of the Father includes you, the church, 
And he, and he gave that up to bring more, to magnify even more the glory of God in the gospel. Because without the gospel, there's no grace. Without your sin, there's no grace. People sometimes ask me, why would God even allow sin in the first place? I say, God doesn't allow sin. He ordained sin. He caused it through evil agents. So he's not, he's not guilty of performing an evil. He ordains an evil agent, initially Satan, to perform an evil act so that sin would enter the picture. Why? Because God will get his glory. He says, I will give my glory to no one else. And the greatest glory for God is to redeem sinful man, which means sin has to be part of the picture. So why did God ordain sin? Because sin creates a need for grace and mercy. And in God's grace and mercy, which angels long to look into, angels are jealous of us in a holy jealousy, not a sinful jealousy. They're holy jealous for us because we get to experience something with God that they will never experience, and that is grace. Because they don't need it, because they don't sin. They experience grace in the sense that they have been created and get to experience God. That itself is grace. But they don't get grace to the extent we get it. And they don't go from dead in their sins and deserving eternal hell to becoming more than the angels and becoming sons of God equal in rank with the Son of God, Jesus, who is God himself. Brothers in Christ. Brothers with Christ. That's why angels are jealous. That's the whole parable of the prodigal son. That this son goes from the worst to the exalted because he returns to his father. That's grace. And without grace, we would never know the gospel. And without the gospel, we would never know the significance and the magnitude of God's eternal glory. And all of that for you. That's how much he loves you. That's the extent at which he goes to know you, to have you, and for you to be satisfied in him. So when I say Jesus is the answer, I don't mean, hey, got some problems? Ask Jesus. I mean, this man loves you more than your brain can even think about. The extent to which he went to show you his love to go from that eternal glory and joy to enter human flesh, Ugh. to become a person, to be humiliated, to go low, to die on a cross, to be sacrificed for you to bear the weight and the burden of the sins of all of God's elect on the cross, to be buried and die. He doesn't deserve that. It is the greatest injustice that will ever happen in, the, in, in history that will never be matched. That the perfect Son of God is struck with the sins of his people. What is your problem to him? What is your problem compared to that God? What is your problem in the face of a Jesus who has left eternal glory to step into humanity to deal with your problem? To deal 
with your sin. What can you say to him? How could you bring a, an issue, a problem, a concern, an agony in his, into his presence and go, this is bigger than you? And he just says, there's nothing bigger than me. What? My entire purpose this morning is to help you see the significance of Jesus Christ. Not just in your problems, but in your pursuit of growth and our motivations for everything we do. Now, I say that so that you would pursue knowledge and wisdom that you find in him. And that is what I would call the positive spin. That's the positive spin on the importance of knowledge and wisdom. To motivate you with the encouragement to go get more Jesus where you find wisdom and knowledge to grow in, to grow in him. Now, there are other ways to motivate you. And I'm going to use one now. The Bible also offers us as motivation warnings. And we find one of those warnings in Hosea 4.6 where God warns us this way. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you. That's a warning. You cannot afford not to pursue knowledge, which means you cannot afford not to pursue Jesus. And just think about it logically. If you're a genuine believer, then you have the real, true God himself dwelling in you, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's primary responsibility is to exalt Christ. So you have God in you who is always maneuvering in such a way as to exalt Jesus in your mind and in your heart and in your actions. So to, to not pursue Jesus, which the Spirit is always doing, is to reject the work of the Spirit in you and therefore is to reject the knowledge of God found in Jesus. And when we reject his knowledge by rejecting the pursuit of Jesus, Hosea 4, 6, he rejects us. That is not talking about losing your salvation. That is not what he's saying. So let me clarify for you what he's saying. Pursuing Jesus is not an option. It's not an option. And if it's not an option, then it's a command. And the command is implicit. It's implied in Colossians 2, 3. There's no explicit command to pursue Jesus in this verse. But 18 times, 18 times in the Gospels, Jesus explicitly says these two words together. And they are a command Follow me. So even though this verse, Colossians 2.3, only implies that we must follow him and pursue him, there are plenty of other texts that leave no room for the misunderstanding for the command that we have to pursue Jesus. And don't just pursue Jesus because I'm telling you, you have to. My point is, genuine believers want to. I hope you can see that. 
to, to not pursue the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus is not an option, is not an option which means implicitly in Colossians 2.3, we are being commanded to pursue Jesus. And then you are promised a reward when you do so. And that reward is you get knowledge and wisdom. And if I go back to the beginning of the sermon, I said if I had a bucket of knowledge and wisdom, I said you could just have it. Would you want it? Of course you would. The reward is you get his knowledge and his wisdom, which will produce joy in your life as you navigate all of your experiences in life. But you can't have more of that without having more of him. So, are you motivated to have more knowledge and wisdom so to obey Hebrews 6, 1, go on to maturity? Are you motivated to gain knowledge and wisdom as Hosea 4, 6 says we must desire? And are you motivated to serve and love and live your Christian life motivated primarily by your love and desire and passion and drive and affection for having more Jesus for being more like Jesus. These things are not options because these are things that make us Christians. To not desire knowledge and wisdom and Jesus is to not desire a Christian life. And the only people who do not desire a Christian life are unbelievers. But for us, this verse tells us all we need to know about what a Christian wants. Because genuine Christians want more Jesus. Do you? Is he your motivation for everything? Okay, Lord, let's be honest. You're not. You're just not. You're not our greatest motivation for everything. We know it. And so when we hear that preached, our reaction, Father, is guilt and shame. And here's the beauty of you. You conquer and supersede and have overcome guilt and shame. So with your gospel your grace, with your glory, with your power, with your strength, cause every heart in here to push through the guilt, push through the shame, and find on the other side you, and let us run to you with everything we have. You are everything. Thank you for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.